You're listening to Spool and Tell, a very dorky movie podcast. We take you now to a random conversation already in progress. But it could be anything. Like, I don't care. Like, you could, you could put it, you know, the United States could propose a health program called Star Wars, and I don't care. It's called Star Wars. Like, more cool names for government boring things. Please. The, the best name is Operation Overlord. That's pretty good. It's pretty good, pretty isn't good. it? Because one, well, it sounds like a He-Man character, but then you realize, oh no, it was for the for the Allies to defeat Hitler. So it's like the best name, Operation Overlord. I think that um, the problem with a name like that, like now, you you really couldn't get away with it because so much of the country would insist that you know that was a sign that a communist dictator was going to be installed in the United States, uh, which is which is a big fear for much of the country. And that kind of raises a question of how to handle this episode. Because for this episode, we are primarily talking about a movie that you pitched as an interesting movie about boomers as a and, generation. That was your and pitch also to me. also for those that are are listening or watching because we are recording this. Um, we might not use the video. That's fine. This it's might fine. just be this uh, this all this video that we're that we're recording right now. That's reference for the animators. Oh, I for see. When okay. we make our Disney musical. So. Okay. Um, the the other the other reason why I pitched this to JD was because you were initially hesitant with with it because I, I think was. the feeling that I got from you is you thought it was just a standard story, you know, people meet. And they get together after a while and they have issues. And you, I think you thought it was kind of like that. But what I also see is because you're about their age, it's also basically your generation, JD, having to deal with the same things that you were promised when you were younger, but have the world, my generation, screwed up on. So a few things there. Uh First, the characters in this movie are a bit older than I am, uh, but, but quite a bit, I think. And really, the the part of their lives that they're looking back on, like looking back to college, that's a little bit closer to my age. I'm significantly younger than you are. Yes. As we've talked about before, uh, the Disney movie that I grew up with was uh, Frozen 2, I believe, was the Disney movie okay. of my childhood. Uh, and the Disney movie of your childhood was... The Cat from Outer Space. The Cat from Outer Space, right. So a yeah. little different. Bearing that in mind, yeah, when I'm watching this, I, I feel like I am still watching uh, the group of people that I could become in a few years, if I'm not very careful. Uh, it doesn't feel like I'm watching people who look like me or remind me of myself. Sure, yeah. So that's the first thing I'll say. Uh, the second thing I'll say is, hi everybody, welcome to the show. <laughs> <laughs> this is and a this is a movie podcast that I think we're we're still trying to uh, as at the time of this recording we're still trying to finalize the name, but we know what it's about. In this show, each of us gets to force the other one to watch movies that we think will make for interesting conversations. It's a hard. And in life. this case. Really? <laughs> and in this case, uh, Nick had a very interesting idea for a conversation about the big chill as a look at uh, the boomer generation and how they changed over time and what they what they went through, what they kind of uh, uh, became. And I at first was reluctant because I believe the way I what I the way I described it to you was it seems very, very low concept. Yes. I'm not sure that there's a lot of story to this movie. Which, which shocked me. When you said low concept, I initially was shocked because I was like, um, okay, he, I was like, okay, so obviously he hasn't seen it. But I had not. I yeah. had not seen the trailer. I had not heard of it. And so for me, I was like, okay, so if I'm putting myself in JD's shoes, one, I can understand that. If I'm like your age and, and high concept is, kind of, I'm assuming what you grew up with mostly for movies, as far as sure. what the prevailing theory is high concept is good i can understand well, why uh, not necessarily okay you know like for me a, a good low concept tv show is gilmore girls whereas a high concept tv show is more like the good place both are excellent shows both i understand very funny both very dramatic but there's a very big difference between a show that's got a pitch that's a big hook 
Yes. You know, something like The Good Place, where you understand the concept that's selling the thing. Whereas with Gilmore Girls, it's like, yeah, a mother and daughter are friends. They're in a town. Uh, stuff's going to happen from week to week. Not really much in this show that's different from what's in every other show, except the characters are really strong and the acting's really good and the dialogue's really smart. Like, high concept is going to be sold on that concept. It's about that pitch. It's about the uh, dramatic irony of the pitch. You know, something like Back to the Future, where even if you don't know who's in it, even if you don't know who directed it, if you don't know who wrote it, if you have no good sense of the genre or whether or not you have any reason to like it, if you just hear that pitch that it's a boy who goes back in time to see what his parents were like when they were his age and accidentally keeps his parents from being able to meet and being able to produce him putting his own existence at risk, like you understand the concept you exactly. that, and you understand what events follow from that. With the big chill... If you tell me that a group of friends is getting together after a funeral for one of their old college friends and they haven't seen each other in a while and now they have to face each other and talk about what they're going through a lot. I mean, that movie's just a lot of talking and a lot of bits and it I, doesn't sound like there's a plot there where A causes B causes C. It doesn't sound like there's a tight sequence of events. Um, and I think by and large, I ended up being right. I think that this is one of the most low concept movies I've ever seen, but that's not a bad thing. One well, of my upcoming pitches for you is also a low concept movie in which a bunch of people get together in an apartment and talk about things, very yeah. vaguely things. Well, and also too, is if you're looking at it from that standpoint, I can absolutely understand why you would consider it a low concept. And, and I think that is not a f bad description right the thing the reason why i pitched this is because i feel at the time we're recording this um this is how many days after the presidential election like a week well the president i mean it, it was election day for a week yeah so, so that about makes a week. it hard to say it's uh, yeah something like that it's complicated so, but something so like that i was like okay when the director came up with this, he was actually at, I'm going to butcher some of this, but basically okay. he was meeting a group of college friends and they were talking about when they were younger. This was like, I don't know, at a 10 year reunion or something like that, like that. And they were mm -hmm. talking about what they had been promised when they were younger and what they thought they could do. And once they got out of college and they finally realized that they were at that age when they were angry at their parents. And he mm. said, a big chill went up my spine to realize life isn't that simple. And so I felt, you know, especially like these would have been my parents in the movie. And so for me, I was very interested to hear your perspective, JD, on how that resonates with you in relation to what you were promised as a young person by the culture compared to what actually has transpired for you. Sure. So... What do you think? How recently did you watch the movie? You watched it for the for this recording? I, I, I watch it like weekly. What? I'm not joking. I, I want like it's just one of those movies that I constantly have on. It's just always there. It's always so I know this. I, I, I grew up with this movie. I know this movie. Way to bury the lead. Let's start there. <laughs> What's everybody's experience with the movie? That's how you start a movie podcast. So you so, grew up with it. How young were you when you first saw it? Uh, it came out, I think, in like 81, I believe. Mm -hmm. By like four or five, I was watching this. Okay. At four or five, you were watching a movie that is pretty explicitly about a lot of sex. But that was the, but you also have to remember the house that I was raised in, what would be your grandparents were that age. So for them, it was put, my family was like, okay, let's put this in context. One, you have to remember this is a movie, and let's talk about what you're seeing. Okay. So at five, your parents wanted to talk with you about sex. Of course, age appropriately. Okay. All right. Yeah. I know we keep having that conversation over and over again. <laughs> it's just so unbelievable that I have to keep bringing it up and make sure that all the no, listeners understand. No, it was understand. it was one of those things, like with the Elephant Man. Have you ever seen the Elephant Man? Sure. Okay. Good movie. So it 
it, it was it was one of those things where she my mom would put it on and she'd say okay one because she knew if with dark movies she because i always had like an active imagination not in a bad way but just i was it was very easy for me to get into movies and tv shows and, and all that yeah and she was like okay with the elephant man you're, we're gonna watch it and then we talked about it what do you think about this this was a real person and that kind of thing and so when it was presented to me at like five years old it wasn't presented about it's about sex it was presented in these are adults these are adult issues what do you think about them and if it was and a concept i had trouble understanding we talk through it age always age appropriately do you have any memories of how your parents would have talked to you about understanding what this movie was about? Yes, putting aside what the what the sort of the press said about it or the the blurb on the movie, it was presented to me as these are friends that had been together for a long time, had not seen each other for a long time and getting together again because one of their friends had died. Okay. So for, at that young age, I had no concept what suicide was. All I saw were adults grieving over the loss of a friend. I did. I couldn't put two and two together. I just didn't know what suicide was. And so for me, mm. I understood what death was. And so for me, it wasn't a difficult movie to get into from that standpoint, but it was always presented, these are adults. It wasn't something that I, as a five-year-old, could go out and smoke marijuana or do any of these things. It was... My mom always saw it as a way to help educate me and prepare me for the world. Okay. I can appreciate that. But then it definitely gets to the question of how accurately does this movie uh, reflect or depict what this generation actually went through? Which I think is a very big question and a difficult question to answer. Now, the uh, was the director of the movie also the writer of the movie? Uh, I believe so. Okay, so this is all out of Kasdan's brain. Uh, yeah, I believe so. So when he's getting together with old friends from college at a reunion, like that group of old friends could include like some of those big name movie people of the 70s, or did he not go to, like, I don't know how he got connected to people like George Lucas, because um, I know that like with, with George, part of how he got connected to George? people like George who? Lucas. Oh, sorry, we're not all on first name basis with him. Uh, yeah, okay. I... <laughs> what about Wait Steven? Do you know Steven? On the... Do you know Steve? Steven? Of course Stevie? I know Steve. Okay. My point is, m most of the people in George Lucas's group of friends who he made movies with in the 70s uh, were people he met in college because mm. all of these famous movie people of the new Hollywood era just all happen to be going to the same school at the same time, which is a weird historical thing. I know it's bizarre. I I wondered if you knew if that if this movie was part of that. Because I don't know that much about Lawrence Kasdan. Am I saying his name right? Lawrence, Lawrence Kasdan? Kasdan, yes. Okay. I don't know that much about him apart from the fact that he's written stuff for Star Wars. And uh this movie is not Star Wars. This is no, not Return of the Jedi. If you're going in expecting Star Wars, do not I Do was not, not watch it. I was not. I mean, I watched the trailer before I watched the movie, which I don't often do for this project that we're doing because I want to be surprised. But this was one in which I felt like I needed to set myself up for understanding what the heck this movie was from the beginning. And it is interesting to see it as kind of a sort of, you know, reflective uh, nostalgia piece from someone who is in George Lucas's group in part because this was a group of California semi-hippies who started their careers trying to make countercultural stuff, but found themselves making some of the most popular films of all time that ended up being mainstream things. Mm -hmm. And George Lucas is such a perfect example because around the same time as I was watching The Big Chill over the past week, I was also watching American Graffiti, mm. which I had never seen before. Very different movie that right. instead of having adults looking back on when they were young in the 60s, this is just when they were young in the 60s. Mm. Like it, that's when it takes place. Um, 1962, I think, is when 
uh, American graffiti takes place, although it feels like it takes place in the 50s, just because the 60s would be known for things that come after this point. Yeah. Uh, very different films with very different ideas, and I'm inclined to think that George Lucas's take on their generation was, in a way, a bit more honest saying these were imperfect people who were kids when they were kids. They were young and dumb and wanted to drive around in cool cars and have sex. The Big Chills take is when they were young, they were all very progressive hippies who hated the police, who thought they were going to change the world. You know, these were like Woodstock people. And then as they got older, they became this, you know, uh, very Reagan-era a neoliberal type who sort of just said, eh, equality, shmequality, who cares, like survival of the fittest, uh, selfishness is good, greed is good, just do what you gotta do for yourself. And that, I think, is the central part of this movie that I question and would actually say is probably a lie. It may have been true for Kasdan, but I think it is a pretty terrible and dishonest depiction of this generation. And the reason why I say that is because if you look at politics in America over time and the way that different generations' uh, politics change, you know, studies have been done. We've watched these trends. And yes, it is true that particularly for the past few generations, younger generations trend more to the left than previous generations, politically. However... Once a generation has its politics, like once a generation kind of figures out where it is on the left-right spectrum, it usually stays there over time, such that the millennials who in the early 2000s were moderately to the left are still moderately to the left. And the, uh, the generation before them, the, the Gen Xers, who in the 90s were maybe a little are bit more to the right, are still, still very bitter. Still a little bitter. bit more to the right. Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Let's and with, the, with Gen X's are still very bitter. <laughs> yes. And that was a the joke. boomers, the boomers, a little bit, significantly more to the right, pretty much always have been. You can look at how age changes a person's politics over time. Again, there are studies, there are graphs. I meant to have one prepared for today, but it's we fine. shuffled around this recording time last minute. So I'll just say... You can look this up or you can trust me. Either way, I don't buy this movie's idea that they changed. I think it's a common thing to say that young people have very far left views and then get very conservative as they get older. That's a normal take, but I don't think it's a true take. I don't think it's really based on anything other than uh, a lot of folks wanting to suppose that it is immature to want a better world and to believe that things can get better. Well, let me let me start off by saying that I'm not going to disagree with anything you're saying. You know, this is going to be a quick podcast then. No, right? no, 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 no. I'm you're taking it from that perspective. I am taking it from the perspective of having known people like this, having grown up around people like this. Okay. What I found and what and they said the boot, the the kids that were like, you know, the don't trust anyone over 30 age in the 60s. Mm -hmm. It was a very odd phenomenon. They were the type, a lot of the time, not all of the time, where they would, they would Woodstock, anti-Reagan, Sesame Street, all of that. And then there was a, a, a change is they kind of, they grew up with parents who went through World War II and the Depression, mm -hmm. rejected all that, thought they had the answer. And then what, what I was around were people that have become disillusioned. Hmm. And usually what I found in the psychology of those people, I didn't know it at the time, but looking back on it, is they thought, that didn't work, let me go the other way. I see. And so it wasn't, so, I see this movie not so much as in whether it's accurate. It's okay. a commentary on the psychology of the generation. And if you look throughout the movie, they, they you think they start out, especially... Um, at the at the beginning with the funeral they all start out one way about you know they've been separated they've had their careers one's a, a super lawyer another's like a super journal well super journalist as in you could read an article on the toilet that's about right <laughs> as much as he writes in the one yeah 
And by the end of it, they realize they actually need each other. It's not the it's not the you know pie in the sky view of the '60s, but it's the core tenet of what we all want, which is family. Oh. And so I I see the movie from that perspective, the psychological change of people going from the the beginnings of the me generation. And let me tell you, growing up around some of those people, they could be as cold as what the movies make it out to be. Okay. To these people going, realizing that their one friend who they had lost touch with, surprise, surprise, committed suicide because he just, whatever, whatever caused him to do it, they realized they had kind of lost their way. And the family they always wanted was actually the family they always had, but it just lost touch from. Well, that's nice. That sounds like a nice movie. I can now start to map the movie that you have just described onto the movie that I remember watching, and I can start to see it, and I think appreciate this film a little bit more than I initially did. But I will say, I will say, if you grew up in that in that generation, the me generation, mm-hmm. as in not what I did, I was a kid, but you grew up in that time period, you would probably look at this movie and vomit, because you go, I grew up in it. I lived it. I don't need to see it again. But if it's like myself or you, JD, where we're just on the periphery of it, I think if you look at it from the perspective of not the me generation, but rather people that have lost their way and come back to their family, I think the movie takes on a bit more of a warmer tone. Yeah, I agree. There is a weird sort of warmth to this movie that is centered around that thing. And I guess what you're pointing to is... Uh, the answer to the film's question, because early in the movie, there's this preacher at the funeral who says pretty explicitly that the objective of his sermon for that day and the objective of the movie is to find hope. Like the camera zooms in. Right. There's a big neon sign pointing (laughs) at him saying theme of movie here. Right. It's clear that that's what they're going to try to do. I don't really see the characters taking many actions towards that. But by the end, it is indeed the case that the hope that they have found is in building good relationships with each other rather than letting relationships die. And the whole idea of the movie really is that uh, had they been a better family to Alex... Maybe he would have had hope. Maybe he would have stuck around, which is a questionable idea, but a nice sentiment. I think yes. it is a very nice sentiment. And and also, um, too, if I can if I can say this goes back to our talks about, you know, how some people want to get rid of, you know, Gone with the Wind and that. And historians are like, no, don't get rid of it. Look at it from its time. I think you also have to look at this movie of the time. We understand the psychology of suicide more. We understand the psychology of what happens with trauma. Sure. And when this was made, it wasn't understood. It was looked upon as a choice, whereas what we now know is trauma can fundamentally change the chemical makeup of your brain. Um, trying to figure out where I can even go from there, because I'm still hung up on, on your Gone with the Wind comment. So I'm sorry, that's, that's... I keep forgetting your American has different, different emotional buttons in the U.S., I forget. Well, I know. I mean, for me... I am not a fan of Gone with the Wind. I really, really dislike it. I've never um, seen it, so... You've never seen Gone with the Wind? Uh, never seen Gone with the Wind. Well, let me tell you this. Uh, I think the movie's about... About 100 hours long, so if you ever get a free week, oh. I would say crash, watch Gone with the Wind, and then maybe try to forget you saw it. No, parts of it are very good, parts of it are very strong, but for the most part... It's kind of just an old guy picking up some dirt and being like, see this? This is our private property. There's nothing more beautiful to the American than our private property. You have to love our property because it's ours. It's property. It's good. It's land. And it's like, screw you. Is that is that like, the one with the nobody knows the trouble? I've, like kind of that mentality about black people in the movie? I, I mean, that's a lot of movies from its time, but I can't remember. True. It's It's... That film's take on uh, slaves and more so former slaves is weird and is a topic that merits a whole discussion. But that is definitely something where we as a culture have kind of decided to, A, 
pull that down a little bit in the film canon. It's not quite at the top anymore. Sure. Even though it's still something that has to be studied as a crazy phenomenon that happened that just broke box office records and was lines around the buildings and we have to figure out, okay, so why? Why did this connect with people? And how it was should the we E.T. Understand of it? its but, day. <laughs> yes. <laughs> How's that for being rude, huh? Um, but then the the other thing is that historians are like, if we're going to just have it on a streaming service, maybe it needs a prologue or something. Like mm. maybe we gotta put that historical context up front sure. in order to try to counter any possible damage there, which is something that I respect. Like the general take on things like that. As you and I have talked about before some, I think we've maybe gotten a little bit into our thoughts on how Dumbo and Song of the South should be treated, either on mic or off. But it's definitely a sensible take to keep history accessible so long as it is appropriately framed. Uh, this is a movie about much simpler things. Yeah. That, so ba- basically, uh, is, that is you... much har- but is and yet is much harder to figure out how to frame in a historical context that makes sense. Because I would argue with this film, most of the things that I would say it gets wrong most people probably still get wrong today. Its understanding of suicide, most people probably still would get that wrong today. And also its understanding of the boomer generation, I would say most people still get wrong today. And so there is no version, there's no simple version of, here's the prologue we put before this movie so you know how to approach it wisely so that you can still enjoy it and appreciate it for what it was. There's no easy prologue, only a very difficult one that takes about the length of an episode of this podcast, conveniently. So I guess we're doing the hard work right now. Um, It's odd because you're right about the tone being kind of down and kind of depressing. And yet, the soundtrack just screams fun. Right? So basically, let's start at the beginning. So basically, the... We're not going to go through the whole movie because I I personally feel that what I would say is if you have a history of suicide and you're not mentally if you um, have a history of committing suicide if you have committed suicide before no that's not what no 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 what I would say is if if you have that history and you don't feel mentally healthy don't watch this movie that's a little strong no it no Uh, no no having known people that are suicidal you have to be in a good place to watch this movie i guess because if you're not if you're not because this movie is very hard it deals with hard issues yes it does i think it's very explicit about suicide yes i think that it deals with them though in a very uh Sort of hands-off way, though. Like but that's what that's why I say, if you're not healthy, mentally healthy, okay, or you have suicidal ideations or thoughts, put this movie off. I just wanted to put that warning out there because it does deal with with sensitive subjects. Yeah, this this movie definitely needs some soft content warning on it. Yeah, and I guess you've probably put it about right. Yeah. Um, so basically, I, I, the, I, it would it would it would surprise me if this is a film that most people who have dealt with a lot of suicidal ideation find particularly. Um, uh, I, I don't know if I don't know if triggering is the right word, I, but I would be. But it's more like I no just wanted one, to put it, that no warning out is, there. Yes, and I think you, that you are right to do so. That's a very good warning that I should probably have in the show notes uh, in the description in some yeah. form. That makes sense. That's very thoughtful. But it's different from a movie about people who are thinking about suicide, right? Because these mm-hmm. are all characters who have who know that before the movie started, a suicide was committed, and then are trying to figure out what could we have done to prevent this. Well, see, this is where I disagree with you. This This is where I disagree with you from the standpoint. You think they feel hopeless. No, why I think the warning was really needed was because at the beginning of the movie, you see Kevin Klein with his wonderful like 70s, 80 hair. You know, you can't get over that. The men in the time periods had very definite hair. And so he's bathing his young son in the bath and his wife getting close. Get you their phone ringing. She picks it up. And then I heard it through the grapevine starts and you, you find out, they find out that their friend died. And so you see all the characters in their lives and all that um, coming to, re- packing up to go to the funeral. But in between that, you see their friend Alex's body being prepared in the mortuary. That's true. And you also see the, the cuts on his wrists. That's very true. 
So that's why I said this. If you have right. those thoughts, just put this off. Okay. Yeah. Gosh, if this is the warning we put before this, think of the warning we're going to have to put before Heather's. Oh, my gosh. I've never seen Heather's. I know, which is why we have to cover it on this show. Okay. And the warning's going to take forever. And then once we start talking about it, I'm going to need like a good four hours to talk about that movie. Well, we can do that. You talk about this is the movie that you just have on all the time. Heather's is the movie I have on all the time. Oh, all right. And it's well, we'll a really, uh, in a way, at least, in a way, it's a really violent movie. <laughs> um, okay, well, I'm looking, I'm looking forward to watching it. Yeah, uh, you should be looking forward to watching Heather's. <laughs> I have no idea how it's going to affect you, but man, it is a force to be reckoned with. Now, with this one, I was going to say the, the, the soundtrack, for the most part, is really... Groovy. Amazing! Like it gets it's, you. It's yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I, it's it's you, like one of the you guys, top albums. You guys albums at home can't see this, but I I start talking about the soundtrack, and Nick gets the biggest smile on his face. He's just looking at me like, uh huh. Uh-huh, like if you, yeah. we had growing up, uh, we had the the album, and then mm-hmm. when Cindy CDs came out, we had that, and we had the tape. It was just like if you want sort of the the best of the '60s album, sure. Get the soundtrack to the Big Chill. Well, no, here's the crazy thing. They released not one, but two soundtracks to the Big Chill. What? Two separate soundtracks for this movie. Oh my gosh. Because this repopularized so much 60s music. And and both charted. See, and that's the thing, J.D., I will say. You love the music for your generation, which is great. You know, there's there's a lot of wonderful music. You You have to remember... In the 80s, there was a resurgence of 60s, 50s, oh, 60s, and I 70s. Know. I could talk about that forever. And again, like this is, first of all, I don't really have that much of an att- attachment to the music that I grew up with. I don't have, I'm an old soul. I don't have much attachment to the music from my generation. My approach to music is actually much more similar to yours. Someone who knew my music tastes would think I was born in the year you were born. But yep. nevertheless, you got a point that... Like in the 80s, it was much more of a time when people had to kind of look back at what their parents were listening to because it became inescapable. What I always find fascinating is trying to count how many hits in the 80s there were that were just a white guy covers a Motown song. I know, like, I know. Questionably, Listen, like, how, however you want to handle that, there is definitely the, like, it's it's still something that you have to think about. Like, because Linda Ronstadt built almost her entire career on singing songs that were hits in the 60s. She was just covering the Hollies, Roy Orbison, Buddy Holly. She was big on the word Holly, is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> That's the real key theme of Linda Ronstadt's music. But it was, it was, yeah, it was like a lot of old Motown stuff and old early rock and roll for her. And then so many other artists were, t- I mean, Phil Collins did his Motown cover. He did, uh, what, what was that Supreme song that Phil Collins covered? Um, you Can't Hurry Love. Right, yes. And, and then you would see the Motown influence in a ton of other 80s songs. I, I will tell and, you, having grown up in that time period, it was a very schizophrenic music, music time-wise. Because yeah. you had something as modern and, and progressive as Michael Jackson. Right. And then you had like singer-songwriters like Paul, Simon and Garfunkel recharting. It was just this very weird. Yeah. It, was, it was wonderful, but it was very like I was going, what generation am I growing up in? Sure. And then I think that there are a number of forces involved in that from people reacting to the death of John Lennon. Right. Meaning, of course, the obsession with Beatles would basically never die. Like at that moment, you can tell people will never be over the Beatles now. Well, I will tell you, there are at that time period from like 77 to about when the Big Chill came out. um, There were I I would say three deaths that were just massively significant, which was John Lennon, Mm -hmm. Elvis and mm-hmm. Karen Carpenter. Right. Within yes. a span of a few years. And those were from a previous generation. I think those deaths, and I may be forgetting some others, those deaths, I think, crystallized the generation. Right. But then the, the interesting thing about that is that Elvis is like late 50s, early 60s is like his biggest, you know, boom, heyday where he just had the the stadiums filled with screaming fans fainting sure as they parodied parodied him in bye bye birdie of right? course yeah, yeah. this crazy phenomenon then john lennon is kind of from the second wave of rock and roll reacting to elvis and then karen carpenter is from the 70s 
reacting to the 50s and 60s doing all this nostalgia music for people who long to go back to just a few years prior. And that nostalgia wave that you can argue the Carpenters kind of launch, it just kind of happens in tandem with Lawrence's friend George. He makes American Graffiti, and that soundtrack was huge. And that soundtrack, by the way, incredible. Like, you look at the end credits of that movie, and the number of music labels that they have to say courtesy of to... My gosh, like set aside the number of songs, just the number of labels they right. had to talk to was dozens. Well, and then also I, you have to remember, with, as, I mean, this is not a music thing, even though we're talking about music. But in the mid, mid 80s, there was La Bamba, which was about Richie Valange and the Buddy Holly story, Stand By Me. There was this whole wave in the like late 70s, early 80s, mid 80s, where it was just a resurgent of my parents' generation. And so for for me, this movie was not that hard of a leap to get through because the, the way it was explained to me is the people in the movie, they had certain dreams that they felt they were promised and they reached an age where they realized they didn't fulfill. Right. So does that make them bad people? Did they sell out their generation? Well, I think that more so what makes anyone in this seem like a bad person is the philosophy that they would eventually uh, adopt and that's particularly the case with Goldblum and I like uh, the the smartest choice made in this entire film like even though the soundtrack choices were all great as I said some of them really get you pumped and get you amped others are much more kind of like whiter shade of pale is much more kind of depressing lots of great choices made there great casting choices great writing choices The idea of taking the dialogue that is the most hard to swallow because it's the most cynical, the most selfish, uh, and giving it to Jeff Goldblum, Uh a character who you will, an actor who you will gladly watch tell you anything. That's got to be the smartest choice in the movie because you're like, he's saying all of these things that sound kind of evil. And yet I love this man and want to spend all of my time with him because he's just incredible. But he presents, an, the character presents an interesting philosophy. And I think this episode is not going to be ranking. I don't really, I could rank this movie personally, but as far as on the spectrum of movies, it's kind of hard to rank. This movie, it's a weird like one. Jeff, yeah. this Jeff, the, the Jeff Goldblum character, um, Michael, he, mm-hmm. he's very naked about his, his position. Yes, and so he presents a very interesting point is, are those that hide their ambition, their narcissism, their aggression more devious than someone like him who's very naked about what he wants? Right. His take is, and it was a, a very, it was becoming a very common take at the time. Yes. Uh, like in the 50s, this was not a normal position to have per se, but then in academic circles, the philosophy known as, and some people hate this word, it's kind of a made-up word, but the philosophy known as neoliberalism mm-hmm. was becoming very popular in academic circles in the 70s and kind of, you know, through a lot of different politicians and authors became, in a way, a very popular thing in the 80s without anybody, or without, I would say, without most Americans really knowing the name of this philosophy. But it's this idea that most people, or rather all people, naturally are in fact selfish and are at their best when they are maximizing their own self-interests. And anyone who goes around claiming, no, 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 I'm actually doing good for other people. Like, I- I'm not selfish. No, no, I right. I have this idea that's, that's being kind to others, that's selfless. That person is dishonest. Right. You can't trust that. And this notion, while rarely stated as explicitly as I just put it, or as explicitly as Goldblum rather beautifully puts it, is kind of what's defined the current state of politics in the United States. And that's States of why America. I thought you'd want to talk about it. And, right. I, and that's why and that's why I'm glad that we actually we were going to record this before the election and I was very glad that we put this off until after yeah. we have a lot more information now on who voted which way and how the American uh, voter still thinks. Yeah. Well, and and that's that's that goes to the question of and I don't need to answer this, but that goes to the the position of the president Trump as at the time of recording this, 
he is doing everything in his power, as frivolous as I think most people would see the lawsuits as, as, as far as having merit goes from a right. legal standpoint. Right. The question that, that um, Jeff Goldblum's character presents is, that's kind of what Trump is doing. Now, you could argue from your own position that that's wrong, but he's very naked about what he's doing. Well, the the key thing here about what Goldblum is expressing is that if ever a politician says, we have this plan that's going to help people by uh, pr- providing a service from the government, the government is going to do a nice thing for the people. Mm-hmm. The American is going to respond to that saying, well, you're lying. You're all politicians. Right. You're just out to make money and obtain power. You're only interested in your own self-interests. So therefore, if you propose a policy that is good for Americans, it must actually be secretly evil for Americans because I know that I can't trust you. You're lying. Which is which is why if you look at the age of the characters in the movie, mm-hmm. they're about the age of most politicians in Washington now. That's so about you're, right. So you're seeing the early precursors of what America and the world are dealing with. So I think it's a very... Other than the hair and the clothing, I think mm-hmm. it's a very relevant movie. And I think it's a question that we all have to ask is, is this the world we wanted growing up? Uh, and I think that the movie has a pretty good understanding of the fact that nobody really got what they wanted in America. Exactly. Um, but I am frustrated with this film because it doesn't really have the serious conversation about, well, why not? It can't. It's not. Re- it doesn't seem to be capable of that. The only thing, the, really, the only thing that it has to say is, well, you know, we used to be good people back in the '60s, but now we just figured out that it's a lot easier to just kind of concede and give in, give up, and just do what everybody else does. Like as, as you said, or as you at least alluded to, if you think about this less as here's the big trend that happened in the United States of people moving from the left to the right, and more as the scary story of people who used to be countercultural finding that now they're just normies. Like they used to, like they've kind of become what they tried to fight against. That's a scary story. And I think I, I mentioned to you when you proposed this film, it does seem kind of similar to The Breakfast Club, just on the other side of it, right? Because The Breakfast Club is a bunch of young people saying, gosh, someday we're going to be just like our parents. Like, we're not going to understand young people. We're going to say the same things that our parents say. We're not going to understand what we understand now. We'll be just like other adults, and it'll suck. And then the big chill is people on the other side, even though this movie, as you pointed out to me, came out a few years before. Uh, This is people on the other side of that saying, gosh, I can't believe I talked to my teenage daughter on the phone the same way that my parents used to talk to me. I can't believe that I've become my parents. How did this happen? And so it is, I think if you compare those two movies, you get two, well, rather depressing and disheartening sides of the same story of, I used to believe in things. Now I don't really believe in much anymore. And if you're very careful to frame that the right way, again, in that sort of breakfast club way of people who used to give a darn losing the energy to give a darn, um, people who used to try to be individuals eventually just conceding to being part of the system, another cog in the wheel, another worker in the workforce, um, a, another person at the office having another day at the office, you know? Like, if you frame it that way, I think it's neat. If you frame it as this was a generation that was progressive and then became regressive, I think that's dishonest. I don't think there's evidence for that. And I think that this is really a movie that assured a generation of boomers that, no, once they used to be good people, once they used to, you know, once they used to uh, be like he implies that they were at the March on Washington with Martin mm-hmm. Luther King in D.C. Right. Like that obviously doesn't apply to most of the people in the audience. No. And if you actually look at the number of people who were, you know, the number of people who were hippies in the late 60s or the number of people who protested in war or the number of people who went to Woodstock even, you'll find that it was less than half a million people. Sure. That's a tiny percentage of the population at a time when the country had more young people than ever before. So, in fact, most young people in the 60s 
weren't these countercultural types who were really progressive or who wanted to see a revolution. Most weren't like that. They liked the music from that. They liked some of the fashion from that. Most weren't actually a part of it. And well, see, that me... is a very telling... I'll just finish this point. Yeah, 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 yeah. That is sort of a thing that we see happening now, where if you look at who voted for Biden, who voted for Trump, who voted otherwise among young people... The thinking was that all of the young people would go out and vote for Biden or maybe try to vote for some other candidate on the left if they really just couldn't stomach Biden because some perceive him as too moderate. Um, in fact, a lot of young people, or at the very least, a lot of young white people definitely voted for Trump. And you couldn't necessarily predict based on a person's age how they would vote, uh, even if you knew their age and race. There were still plenty of young uh, Latinx voters who voted for Trump. You know, there were some young black voters who voted for Trump. It's weird, but it is a thing that happened. And when you look at the percentages, even though they're very low, considering how many people voted, they're actually higher than you would expect. And so we have this image in our minds, even now, of young people being very, very far to the left, just all being like Bernie supporters, all being socialists or communists or what have you, uh, all being, you know, supporters of BLM or supporters of, you know, any, any number of progressive causes. In fact, it's a very mixed bag and old people notice the young people who are the most countercultural because they make the older people most uncomfortable. It's the young people who make people uncomfortable that get noticed and that become the stereotype for the whole generation. And this movie is looking back at the 60s and saying that that stereotype of young people was what the generation was. And it's doing that with the benefit of hindsight of understanding that the people fighting against the war, against the Vietnam War, Pro, right, protesting that war, and the people who were fighting for civil rights were on the right side of history. So it is supposing that its audience of boomers was morally in the right and saying, oh, we were all good guys back then when we were young. Back in the day, we all supported the right causes. We were good, and then times changed. And it's like, no, you're lying. Most of your audience was still bad. They did not change. Well, see, and, and, and I, t I took it, and this is my interpretation, at a young age, I took it as a warning. Which that is if you're the, not get, careful, if you're not careful, you will become the thing you hate when you were young. And that is the good reading of this movie that's the best defense for it and makes it yeah. a very interesting and watchable film. That if you look at Jeff Goldblum's character right out of the gate, he comes in. Uh, I think it's I think it's Kevin Klein's character is walking him down the, the, the aisle of the church and they're saying, could you look after Chloe? And he's like, sure, who's Chloe? And they said, Alex, the gentleman who, who committed suicide, um, his girlfriend, and he sees him and it's Meg Tilly. And she's this from a she's this young, pretty, thin character. And right away, his animal instincts kick in. And throughout the movie, he hits on her and tries to get close to her. And there's this wonderful moment later on in the movie where she's being filmed by William Hurt's character, Nick. Because they have one of those big honking early 80s VHS cameras, which is lovely yeah. to see, but was hard on the neck, I'll tell you. Um, but he's filming her, and he William's Hurt character, William Hurt's character is showing everyone what she's saying about Alex. And I think through her, they're seeing what they were like. And if you notice at that moment, there's a turn in all of the characters of going, we weren't bad people. We weren't selfish. We were young. We were naive. And then this kind of gets into the question of, do you need to be naive in order to have hope? And I think this movie is kind of like, yeah, probably a little. And I'm like, I don't know. That Which I, I would disagree. Idea. Hope is always good. Mm, hope is always good. Hope is all when you are at your darkest. And again, this this movie is a dark movie. When you are at your darkest, hope is a good thing to get you going. Yes, it's a good thing to to make you go. You know what? People make mistakes. There are bad people, but there are. It doesn't mean everyone has to be bad. Do you think Lawrence Kasdan wanted to title this movie "A New Hope"? And he got a call from his friend George saying, no, I, I'm going to use that later. <laughs> I need that. Well, I need, I'm going to use that as the title of a movie. Well, what's that movie going to be about? Well, I already made the movie. I just need to retroactively 
uh, Do it. put that title yeah. on. Maybe, uh, wouldn't it be great if somebody found, like, old documentary footage of Kasdan and Lucas talking, and Kasdan's like, yeah, I'm working on this movie called The Big Chill about uh, people who've grown up, they've lost their way, and they're trying to find a new hope. And George is like, stop the presses! That's it! We found Maybe. it! Now, out um, of curiosity, going into the trivia... Did you do okay. any research on the actors in this movie? A little bit. Okay. But you might what still did, surprise me. What did you find out about Alex? That's the thing. I looked this up. I cannot remember what I found. I found that they had someone who who they shot to play him. I can't remember who for the life of me. Kevin Costner. Yeah, that's right. That's insane. He's confirmed ins- that too. That's the thing. It's insane that they shot a movie around... Uh, like with Kevin Costner as a significant supporting character and removed Kevin Costner from this the was before he was Kevin room. Costner. I see. Well, that's again, another thing that makes this so much like American graffiti is here's the picture for boomers looking back with a really strong soundtrack and all these actors you don't know. By the end of the movie, you will know them. You will love them. You will demand to see all of them in every movie. Like both films made stars of their entire casts. Right. See, and I mean, I'm, just, I'm just watching, the, like, I remember watching this, like, so how many of these actors have been in the MCU or, like, in some big cinematic universe? Yep. Because it feels like they've all kind of gotten to have pretty good careers because of this one film. Well, and it also, too, it just goes to show that how far some of them have fallen is Kevin Klein's character has started a running shoe company in this. And it's at, we find out later that it's at the point where he's going to be, be bought out by a major corporation, which would make him insanely wealthy for the rest of his life. And he's he's it's supposed to be the secret, but he's out jogging with Nick, William Hurt's character. Mm-hmm. And he said, just so you know, this is what's going to happen. Anyone that has my my stock in my company will be wealthy for the rest of their lives. Don't tell anyone. So it makes you go... How much of a how much is are these characters remembering themselves accurately? Because right. to look at going severe penalties for yourself, your family, and for your friend, that's a pretty big leap from protesting the man. Right, exactly. It is, they are becoming precisely the systemic problem, uh, the systemic problem that they fought against. Which then becomes part of my problem, which is I think by the end of this movie, I'm supposed to like these characters. And instead, I, a young person, still just want to go protest them. Like, I just want to go stand outside their house with a sign that says you suck. But see, and And, that's why I wanted to talk about this, because from my my position, um, having grown up around people like this, what I see are wounded people. I've seen the behind the scenes of these people, which is these people are, yes, what they're doing may be bad, but they're really coming from a generation that went from hippie and protesting to therapy and analysis and and all that to now becoming the boomer generation, the me generation. So it was a very weird mix of like in a span of like 10, 15 years, they went from this to this. But does that make them bad people? And that's, I think, the, the, the question also in this movie is, are they genuinely bad people? And I think if they were very seriously having that discussion, like if this was more of a let's talk about our feelings and our insecurities about how maybe we're bad people movie, then I would be very into it. Like there's definitely a version of this script that I can see myself loving and the version that we got is sort of a lot of individual storylines about uh different characters who i by the end don't really care for who are a lot less interested in doing real meaningful reflection that interests me than they are in just trying to reassure themselves that they're not bad vent about the stuff they do that they didn't think they were going to do when they were young, vent about the things they thought they would be better than, and then say, you know, let's all just have sex. Like, it's mostly a bunch of really horny people who are trying to make sure that they get laid on this vacation. And I don't like them. I don't care. Like, I almost any time when this film deviates from precisely the conversation you and I are having about it, and I would argue that for the first 40 minutes at least... 
the stuff that you and I are talking about, these themes of the movie hardly come up. Um, and even later I would agree. on, even yeah. later on, there's still much more of a focus on. So is she going to get pregnant? Because she really wants to get pregnant. Is she going to get pregnant? Um, and that. Sorry, there's a no, no plane going overhead. Yeah, plane. There's a, a there's we've got a plane that's flying uh, a little close to the ground. It's it's probably uh, the new person that they're sending in to be in charge of the military because Trump okay. just fired the people in charge of the U.S. military. <sighs> I don't know if you saw that, but see, the people in charge of the U.S. military uh, would not have supported Trump if he said that he was just going to stay in the White House and not acknowledge Biden as president. So Trump uh, uh, just replaced the people in charge of the military with loyalists to him and his party. So Yeah, we did see that. So that's that's fine. It's fun. You know, okay. if you ever need a, a vacation, just let me know you're coming. Oh, do you have like a like a big beach house thing where no, uh, there's an old find, ladies camera? No, but we can find a place and... for you. We can find a place for you, JD, if you need it. I, I was going to say, are we going to go have a big chill? Yeah. Let like, me know when the plane's the way... gone. Let me know when the plane's gone. The plane is gone. I'm keeping okay. all of that in. I'm not editing okay. that out. I'm keeping all of that in because it's kind of funny and kind of uh, scary and a good, you know, for, for the sake of historical documentation. I think sure. people deserve, people should hear that panic attack a little. But yeah, I like to think that the reason why this movie is called The Big Chill is because uh, it's a really big house and they're all chilling in it. <laughs> but see, like, here's the thing. Here's either the that thing, or it's you... just really cold. It's just there's see, no, there's not good heat in that house. And so the house just gets really cold at night and it's a big chill. I'm going to totally contradict. I'm going to disagree with what you're saying about your position okay. on this. Because if you look at it at the time this was made, mm-hmm. this was considered a deep movie. Okay, this that's wa- stupid then? <laughs> that Because, again, you have to realize in from the, that time to now, we have progressed societally as far as understanding emotions, how the brain works I question so that, much. But I question uh, okay. You know, I mean, so- yes, yes, professionals, yes, experts, yes. But has the public gotten better at listening to those experts? Not very much. Uh, so for In me, the U.S. In Canada, you probably have a different experience with it. But in the U.S., we don't think about anything um, uh, intelligently or in a way that is in accord with evidence or data. Well, see, at the time this was made, this was considered one of those artsy philosophical movies. And from your generation, I can understand why you're saying you don't like it. I get it. But I think, again, you have to kind of put yourself in the mindset of what if you were in your mid-30s? Right. And life hadn't gone your way. It well, hadn't gone the way you wanted. That's the tricky thing, is that I may not be in my mid-30s, but I am in my mid-20s. Life has not gone the way I want it. I have not worked for the people I wanted to be working for. I have not had the accomplishments that I wanted to have. I have not affected the kind of change that I would like to see in the world. Um, but that hasn't made me open to the idea of becoming anything like these people. Instead, it has made me more so want to be their opposite. It has made, uh, over time, since college, instead of getting less progressive, I've gotten more progressive. I have, instead of becoming more content with inequality, I've become more frustrated by inequality, more angry about it, and I was pretty angry about it in college. So I see my, at least for now, I see myself trending in the opposite direction of these characters, which makes it difficult for me to accept these characters as good people or people I run or people I want to root for. But again, you have to look at that generation. Yes, I know, and it's a different time. But then yeah. it becomes a depressing thing if I'm if I'm just thinking about it historically because I'm seeing how Reaganomic thinking took over. I'm seeing how Randian thinking took over and how I see this as part of the scary process of us getting to where we are now, and I see a generation getting duped. I see a generation getting tricked into thinking that greed, for lack of a better word, is good, and thinking that this horrible person that Goldblum is playing is actually right, in a way, at least to a point. And that, for me, makes it a thoroughly depressing and disheartening movie that is cynical And that is just kind of enraging to watch because I just want to slap all of these people and say, get over yourselves, think big picture, think about other people. 
And I just don't know that this, I don't see this movie having the intelligence to say what it easily could, which is that if the only way these characters were able to find hope was in finding each other and strengthening their relationships with each other, then they should focus their larger philosophical views on trying to do the same for the country, on trying to build a country and a world in which people look out for one another and stick up for one another. I don't see them having an interest in that. I think if you want to see that conversation being had in a much more interesting way, then the uh, suicide-focused franchise that you have to look at is Heather's. That's the film that I think, that I did not expect to compare this movie to on the onset, but that's the film that I think has this conversation a little bit better. Still not perfectly, but all things considered, honestly, significantly better. Well, and that's the, that's the reason why I chose this movie, is I think you see what we're going through now in this movie. These people are the precursors to what is happening in the U.S. politically. Yes, but... Again, it's not being honest about how it happened, and it is not framing what happened very wisely. It is an interesting historical feature to look at, but only for those few moments every here and there in which a character outright says what uh, economic and political philosophies they embody. That's not most of the movie. That's not the focus of the movie. That's going to be the focus of a movie like maybe Wall Street, but... Not this film. That's just a feature of this film that is honestly kind of a feature of 80s movies and something that, I mean, whenever you look at a movie from the 80s, you see the Reagan in there. You see the traces of it. You can look at the Transformers movie in the 80s. There, that came out in the 80s, right? They did yeah. an animated movie in the Like, you can look at all that and see how that was very much inevitably a product of of, of Reagan and what what was happening at the time, even just the changes in regulations regarding TV toys and how toys could be promoted on TV. You can look at most of the films of the 80s and see the kind of thing that you want to see here in terms of how we got to where we are in the United States now. But I would argue this only spends a tiny portion of its runtime talking about a very tiny part of the picture. I still think it facilitated a somewhat valuable discussion, but does that make it a good movie? I would say probably not. Well, and the, the, the other thing, too, that I would, I would counter everything you said is when you have lost someone that's close to you, your mind doesn't go to those grand philosophical points. Hmm. You know, you're, you're generally, death to some degree makes us a little self-centered. You know, you're thinking about how does it impact me? And so for me, what, what you see as a negative, I just sort of see as the grieving process. Yeah. And maybe that's fair. Maybe that maybe you should just isolate this movie as a film about people who are grieving. But then when you do that, you do kind of need to set aside everything else that we've talked about. To me, Rightly what I see are, are characters who ha are grieving the loss of their ideals. Sure. They're grieving the thought that they could be any different than they are now. You know, that mm -hmm. everything they've done up to that point actually made them who they are today and coming to terms with that the loss of a friend the loss of a childhood i mean we were we were talking earlier about you know how elvis and john lennon and karen carpenter sort of those deaths signified something i think the death of alex um signified the death of their youthful ideals i would also say if you want to go even deeper philosophically you could say that they are truly self-destructive characters which is sure, what, yeah. when you think about it, suicide is. It's a self-destruction. Mm -hmm. And so for, so for me, what this is, is a movie about a generation realizing that they have self-destructed what they wanted to be. I see. Yeah. And that's very interesting. And that's an, an interesting thing to talk about and think about. And uh, hopefully our listeners will have a lot to say about that as well. Um, I think that uh, anyone who watches this uh, for the sake of listening to this episode will uh, probably have uh, some interesting thoughts on that, especially now that, as you just explained, uh, really, this is a movie about characters mourning the loss of John Lennon. And Alex is John Lennon. That's what the movie's about. To them, yeah. 
to them. No, no, that's literally the movie. It just it says on the poster, this is a movie about John Lennon. That's oh, that's right. About. I forgot about that. Right, right, right. It's a very easy thing to forget, but it's true. <laughs> um, well, and the other thing, too, is I find it very interesting in our podcast. We're like, we don't want to talk politics. We don't want to talk about what's going on. Oh, and then for this invariably- episode... We invariably do end up yeah, talking about Yeah, for this them. episode, I wanted the whole thing to be about politics, because that's <laughs> that was the justification for covering this movie. Um, yeah, which uh, I guess we'll maybe... Yeah, we're running it... We're running out of time, so we'll have to save the rest of our conversation about politics for another time. But I'm sure that we're going to solve, you know, the economy, social justice, inequality. We'll solve all of that in a future episode. Stay tuned of course, for that, folks. Of course. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, sure, I'm sure there won't be any wars or anything in the next few years, so... We should be good to figure all that out. Yeah, absolutely. Everything's going to be great. There's, uh, I anticipate uh, nothing but happiness for the next several, several, several years of my life. And 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 on behalf of Canada, we are pulling for you guys. Thank you. We are genuine. I, I will speak on behalf of Canada. As much as we we do rag on things that go on in the U.S., we we are we are like your next door neighbor. We don't want you two guys to fail. We we genuinely love what you guys are ideally about. Well, that's very nice of you. Um, let's wrap up the show. You can follow me on Twitter at JD11PC. Nick? And you can follow me on Twitter at Nicholas Lemon. And until next time, I'm Nicholas Lemon. I'm JD Hansel, and I heard it through the grapevine. Yay, that's the end of the show. All right. Um, I'm going to stop recording.